Hello, dear podcast listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you all enjoyed part one of Grant Simmer's podcast. If you haven't listened to part one, maybe scroll back and give it a go first. He recalls that iconic Aussie victory of the America's Cup back in 1983, part of Alan Bond's Australia 2 challenge. It's an incredible story, and he really relives it in the pod. We sat down with Grant in what felt like the last two remaining chairs at his team's HQ in Portsmouth. They were literally in the final pack-up before relocating to Auckland, their race boat in the shed below being fitted out before being flown out to join them. It's starting to get quite exciting. Coming up, we get the full lowdown from Grant on AC34, the San Francisco Cup, which sees Grant tell us an insider's perspective on just how the Americans, Oracle Team USA, pulled victory from the jaws of seemingly certain defeat. And we reflect on the team's loss in Bermuda. Before I look forward to what we have in store over the coming six months from the Cup in Auckland. So sit tight. It's another really revealing chat. I hope you enjoy part two of the time I spent with Grant Simmer. So we capsized and we didn't really know how to write the boat. Larry calls Russell saying, call a lay day. After we'd won, seeing Jimmy and Ben, we're just looking at each other going, what the hell happened, you know? By AC 34 Grant, you'd moved to the Americans, to Oracle. Am I right? You that were... was another phone call from Russell. <laughs> and we hadn't really spoken for a long time because of everything that had happened after the 03 Cup. And he rings out of the blue and goes, uh, let's talk about what's happened, then I've got something I want to ask you. So then, classic Russell. So we had this long conversation about what had happened and you know why it was awkward and blah, blah, blah. What had happened? Well, way back 10 years previously, Russell was talking about what had happened when he left Alinghi and clearing the air about that. And then he said, well, would you come and work for Oracle, <laughs> you know, out of the blue? So uh, that was um, 2010 or 2011. Yeah, and so then I went and worked for Oracle um, in San Francisco with the AC-72s with Jimmy. And uh, we're, Brussels was really focused on the event by then. And... Um, yeah, it was good actually. I th it was a bit of a leap of faith, but the team itself was really welcoming, really good, quite a good design team, but a bit, bit, bit disjointed. Um, so it's my job to kind of tie it all together, which I really enjoyed actually. It was a, it was actually a good cup, and you know we launched boat one and we were in a hell of a mess, and we had that huge capsize which was another disaster, you know. The, you want to talk about that? <laughs> you want to, that was a disaster. Um, so we capsized and we didn't really know how to write the boat. So we couldn't write the boat. And it was a massive ebb tide in San Francisco Bay. And we struggled to tow the boat and we tried to tow over to Sausalito to get out of the current to try and deal with it riding the boat and um, the current was too strong and we got swept out the gate and then once we got outside the gate the waves were bigger and ultimately the rig broke so then the boat went upside down and we kept we couldn't tow back into the current we couldn't tow fast enough with the way the boat was with the rig and had to cut the rig away and we had to wait until the tide turned so we got back to the dock at about two in the morning on the tide, really. We came back up in 
only towing at four or five knots. Again, so it was only really could get back into the harbour with the tide turn. The boat was absolutely trashed. Um, the wing was trashed. Um, so then, then it was a major, it was the opportunity to rebuild and we were going to start building boat two and we said we've got to redesign, redesign really. And that was about the same time that we saw the Kiwis falling. We found out that they were falling and we hadn't designed the boat at all to fall. So now suddenly we're designing a falling boat, not a displacement boat. What a scramble, eh? Massive scramble. I mean, that was quite a moment. We, we, Ian Percy mentions it as well, that um, Emirates Team New Zealand re released a bit of footage. Well, they, 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 you know, they had um, Glen on an A-class with foils yeah. on it and they were on some lake on the north. You know, we didn't know about that. They, they, they were really clever, you know. Nick Holroyd was there. They'd figured out they'd get the thing to foil. And the cup in San Francisco is a, is a favourite topic on this podcast. We've talked it through with Jimmy Spittle, of course, with Ben Ainsley, Carl Langford, all big performers in that remarkable turnaround. They yeah. all talk about it from the perspective of their own roles. But what's your take on that cup, Grant? How did your team, Oracle Team USA, improve enough to turn around that 8-1 deficit? Well, we were able to foil upwind. That was the whole cup was about being able to foil upwind. And we'd only just started, uh, Jimmy remember better than me, but only really getting into it at the beginning of the cup. And then we, uh, we got better and better at it and could do it with consistency and at lower wind speeds. And the aerodynamics of our boat was such that with a higher apparent wind speed going upwind and maybe where the center of gravity was but, and the foils, we could foil upwind and they couldn't really. They were skimming upwind, but we were completely falling upwind. And um, that was the deciding factor. And for me, the turning point in that cup was um, it was a morning race. We had two races a day. The first race, you're allowed to call one lay day. With a, the idea was if you had a breakdown in the morning, you didn't want to lose two races. So you could call a lay day in the afternoon. And... Um, and we had raced in the morning and we'd lost. It wasn't a big loss, but it was a loss like, we're not going to beat these guys. And Larry calls, Larry calls Russell saying, call a lay day. And Russell and Larry talk and decide to call a lay day. And Russell gets Jimmy, I, I guess Jimmy told you this, Russell gets Jimmy to come over to the chase boat between races and say, okay, got to, I know there's nothing broken, but we've got to call lay day and regroup. So we did. Um, we did. And uh, it was potentially kind of throwing away a race if, if we hadn't had a breakdown. But that was really the start of the turnaround. It kind of shocked the team. We changed after that. We changed the way we trimmed the wing. We'd beyond our structural limits. Poor old Scotty Ferguson was... Really, you know, we kept loading up the wing more and more down low. And, um, and that was helping us to increase the force in the wing with a lower centre of effort. And that was helping us fall, as Kyle probably told you. And, uh, and then, um, Ben, we put Ben on the boat instead of JK. And that, uh, not that JK had done a bad job, but just because Larry wanted that and uh, the, all those changes. Well, I mean, we lost the next race anyway, but we were a lot faster. And the more time we were buying, we were getting better at going. We'd go sailing all the time. I think we sailed that boat every day for 20-odd days straight and it virtually only ever sailed for one or two days and then had a lot of maintenance on it. 
we'd kept the thing going for 20 odd days. Um, so the shore team were just whipping themselves every night to keep the thing running. And, um, and the boys were pretty damn cool, eh? Hey? They were, you know, they were, well, you know, what was the score? 8-1 or something? 8-1? For God's sake, 8-1. And then uh, they just went out and Jimmy, you know, getting a good start day after day. Ben made some bloody solid calls. And, yeah, yeah, they just got far. We got faster and faster as we kept developing this technique of falling upwind. And then really it was we were only going to lose from a breakdown, which nearly happened on the last day. We had a failure in the wing on the, before the last start. And um, Jeff Causey was up the wing with hot epoxy, you know, gluing the thing together, and they couldn't even, he couldn't do his pre-start practice, he couldn't do any prep because we were waiting for the glue to cure, you know. But they, they eventually raced and, uh, yeah, they saw the last race just solid again, really solid. Jimmy talks about that breakdown in his podcast. He said it was just, the clock was ticking. They had a guy up the mast, as you say, with, with uh, that quick cure epoxy. And he just looked at Ben and they burst out laughing. It was just so It was, it was unreal, so unreal, the whole thing. Yeah. What was that? What was that? It was interesting, you know, Ben and, uh, and Tommy, Tommy Slingsby, they, they just, you know, they hadn't even, Ben had never sailed in that position before. So we're halfway through the America's Cup, new tactician and, and Tommy and Ben just working together. If you listen to the comms from that racing, bloody good, eh? And Jimmy just steers, you know, pretty cool, doesn't, just happy to, you know, had faith in them straight away. That was bloody good, really solid. What about in that big white shed? I guess, you know, your department. What was the dynamic like there? And they called that lady and... Yeah, yeah that meeting, that meeting was... Who led that? Uh, Russell, Russell, me, myself and, uh, and Jimmy and uh, was, you know, essentially we're going to lose unless we risk everything. We have to risk everything, you know, and push. We, have, we push the wing pretty hard structurally um, and as that was a big, big driver of the improved performance. We've talked a lot about your time in the Cup today, the innovations of Australia too, the wing keel, of course. But as I said many times, I'll never forget being out on the water for that first race in San Francisco and seeing those two giant 72-foot multi-hulls literally flying downwind. What were your thoughts, Grant, seeing that level of technology, those advances in design after all you'd seen in your career, seeing two sailboats go head-to-head like that? Uh, yeah, I, was, I mean, you get so involved in it. it was, I was more focused on the fact that, that they were quicker than us, uh, quicker than us upwind when we were in skimming mode. So uh, that was a real concern. Downwind, prior to the cup, jibing, jibing downwind, falling jibes downwind was, we thought, was a real key. And so we mastered that and we were pretty fast downwind, but upwind in the skimming mode, they were faster than us. So upwind, they were a bit faster than us. And... Uh, yeah, that was, we were kind of focused on that. And, you know, San Francisco's can be a one-way track, so there wasn't a lot of opportunities. Um, hell of a spectacle, though. The big, you know, the huge crowd on the shore. So, uh, I mean, it was actually interesting that that uh, one of the greatest comebacks in sporting history in such an iconic arena, in the coolest boats ever we'd ever seen. You'd think, well, the cup's got to be launched from here, but, we, you know, it's, we struggled really for the next cup to get enough teams, to get, to get enough media profile. 
that, that um, anyway, that's a slightly different subject now. I mean, as we've already mentioned, Grant, you've won the cup four times as a sailor, as a, a design chief. Where did that remarkable win in San Francisco rank in your career highlights? Yeah, it, well, it won't surpass Australia 2 because uh, Australia 2 was just kind of really unreal. But the, San Francisco was next. I, I don't know. The, the ones with the lingi were fantastic too. I, it was almost a disbelief, you know. I remember seeing, after we'd won, and then seeing Jimmy and Ben when we got ashore with them, and they just kind of looking, we are just looking at each other going, what the hell happened, you know? How could that happen? And uh, it was kind of disbelief, more than disbelief and relief. And the work that the team had put in, we used to do the things like you could have a code zero and not have a code zero. So pending the weather forecast, we'd back everything on Vila's forecast for the next day. So we'd take on the long, we'd put the long spine on if we thought we needed a code zero downwind. And if we thought we weren't going to race for code zero, we could take it off. And it was a measurement process and setting up the spine, preloading it. So the guys, it's hours and hours of work for 10 or 15 guys to make that change. It was on and off and on and off and is the wind going to drop? Anyway, um, there was just so much things that we did, so much risk that we took for San Francisco. And then the whole thing with the wing, with a broken control arm in the wing on the last day and somehow it hung together. God knows why it hung together. Um, yeah, yeah. It was... Unbelievable, an unbelievable result. To, to not break down, to come back from 8-1 and not break down in one of those boats where the whole thing was edgy, the whole thing, pretty impressive, yeah. So much in the cup is behind closed doors, isn't it? I mean, just give us, give us a glimpse, I guess, of, of how much work goes on behind, behind the shed door. Even this team now, with the boat, new boat here, the guys have, you know, been working. We've been working a double shift to fit this boat out and do the structural testing. And there's some players down there that have been. Um, I just don't know why they don't need more sleep. You know, they're just here every time I come in. They're here. You know, so um, yeah, you get people that are incredibly driven and not you know the sailors have to interestingly the sailors have to do the job at the end so it's really a, a lot of the really grind hard work has happened is happening around now which will influence the result in the cup and most cups are like that you know that that the work that's happening now like san francisco the work that happened in Christmas, around Christmas period of that year, was really critical towards the final outcome, you know. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's design decisions, uh, making the right design decisions, balancing risk with performance, using your time wisely. That's um, all things that... I find kind of fascinating. You stayed with Oracle, didn't you, for the next cup, off to yeah. Bermuda. Um, I've often wondered, Grant, as the defender, so Oracle Team USA, according to the deed of gift, they set the class parameters. So how do those class rules come about with the 50-foot foiling multi-hulls? Was that something that Larry Ellison wanted? Was it something Russell Coates wanted to make happen? I mean, how much of a discussion... Was there about, you know, the class rule and what that would look like? Uh, quite a lot. We did it, well, we did it with Alinghi with the AC90 after 07. We wrote a class rule, which we hired Schnackenberg to manage it, and then we got all the teams together and all the designers would come, including Oracle, including Team New Zealand, and we'd come up with this boat, um, so I'm 
I'll get back to your question in a sec. But we'd come up with this boat, which was going to be a two-year cycle. That was the 07 Cup. And then the court cases started. And then we won a court case. So we did, and then it was the recession, 08. We're in a recession then. So we did a smaller boat, which was going to be the AC-72, I think. So we rewrote a class rule around it. So then we now come back to San Francisco and we decided we needed a smaller boat. Those boats were too big and, and too complicated. So we were going to do a 65, I think it was, and we hired Pete Melvin to help us write the rule and um, we included the teams, all the teams. Excuse me. Um, so we were... And, and there was back and we were issuing drafts to the team so they could see the rule and we could correspond with the teams. But um, we didn't get as many teams as we'd hoped for. So then the decision was made we needed to make it massively cheaper. So that's when we changed to the AC-50 and we made one design hull, one design beam, one design wing spar and rewrote the rule yet again, and that became the AC-50. And that's when um, Patricio Bertelli didn't like all of that, the change, and he pulled out, sadly. Um, but in general, Artemis was supportive, and Team New Zealand was, because it was going to be a cheaper project, massively cheaper project. So we went, you know, the last cup in Bermuda, a lot of one-design components, but you still did your falls, you still did your control system and your wing control system. And, you know, for the public, I think they saw it as a technological event, really. So even though Luna Ross had pulled out, I think it was the right decision for the cup to try and reduce costs. And we got the Japanese team, which was kind of a kind of a link to the Oracle team, but it was all about trying to get more competitors. And Russell really led that process. We were really worried about the Kiwis even before they left New Zealand. But I'm confident that we are making some good decisions over the last year, particularly. If you run out of time and money at the same time, then you've managed the program perfectly. You had a great setup in Bermuda. I mean, we filmed with you quite a lot uh, yeah. um, with, with Oracle. I mean, it, it all looked very in control, I'd say, every time we came. I mean, how confident were you going into that cup? Um, so, yeah, Bermuda, we did have a great setup in Bermuda, and we went there early because we had to move out of the San Francisco base and. and um, Interestingly, the city of San Francisco wasn't really, it would have been our first choice as a venue, but um, turned out they weren't that supportive. So then um, um, Bermuda came up and Russell had done the negotiations with Bermuda. And so to support that decision and to really only make one move, we went to, San Fran uh, went to Bermuda and sat up there moved all the families there quite early and we had a really nice team it was a really good feeling in the team but we kind of when we watched the kiwi sailing we knew that they they had a better control system than us they had probably had better boards than us well they did have better boards than us and we the feedback from our recon both from Kyle and Slingers who went over there, was we got an issue here, we got a problem. So we, we were really worried about the Kiwis even before they'd left, even before they'd left New Zealand, we were worried about them. And that, that concern was obviously correct. Did you feel quite early on that you'd missed something design-wise then? It was all about the boards um, and we had problems with our last set of race boards. I think the geometry was right, but we had some problems with the structures of those boards and um, that really 
I think that probably was a key deciding factor. I think the um, I think the Kiwi control system with Blair with the follow the dot thing. I think it was better than Jimmy controlling it with the twist grips on the um, on the steering wheel. Because if you watched um, Pete sail that boat, he was kind of free to look around and free to focus on racing, which he did extremely well. Whereas Jimmy's, you know, we're asking him to fly the boat, steer the boat, and look at his opposition, position the boat, you know. I think, I think they're conceptually, they were much better. And, and this cup, you won't see the helmsman, you'll only see them flying the boat in manoeuvres, you know. It was quite hard to watch in the end, and I'm sure it was from inside the team. I mean, with the benefit of a lot of hindsight, maybe a few sleepless nights, where do you really think that Oracle lost that cup in Bermuda? <sighs> well, I think it was largely design and... Uh, uh, the two things I mentioned, the design of the boards, maybe the rudder designs. The Kiwis had much smaller rudders, uh, um, so there was a less wetted surface in the rudders, so that was helping a lot. You don't have much in the water, so you can make quite a big percentage gain. So their rudders, I think, were out. They had steel rudders, we had carbon rudders. That was a big, a big issue, but largely in the boards. And then the control system, I think they're, uh, I think the bikes were bloody smart, really smart, better windage solution, much better windage solution. Yeah, so control, boards, rudders. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I thought Artemis was quite good, but not, we're never going to beat the Kiwis. We would have struggled. If we raced uh, Artemis in the final, we would have struggled with them. How do you, I guess, you know, you're overseeing the whole thing. I mean, how do you feel when it all ends like that? How responsible do you feel? Um, good question, really. Um, you dwell on decisions that were made earlier on. You know, this balance of how much risk you take, how much you... I've done it several times in my career. I've sort of forced a conservative approach and uh, and I think in these new generation of boats you can't do that. You've got to, you've got to hang it out there particularly if you want to win. You know, if you don't, if you just want to get a good result, you can be sort of conservative, but it's about winning. It's not about a good result, you know. Yeah. Um, do I blame myself? No. I mean, it's collectively with the way we make decisions. I, I think it is always a bit of a group decision. Um you know, the, the wing thing on a Lingi 5, that was a... We probably, if we'd really put some pressure on Ernesto, he might have, he probably would have agreed to do it. We would have scrambled like hell, but it probably was a big driver, you know, that. And we had the opportunity to go to bikes on our final boat in Bermuda. We probably should have done that. We And... We should have, I should have been just harder with that decision because I think it was definitely better from an aerodynamic point of view and a power. And, uh, the, yeah. And then the other decisions were largely taken as a group in the design group. And no one, no one individual being responsible. They're just, you know, as long as you communicate decisions that I think we all own them, you know. Jimmy, as well as, as much as me, really, with a lot of them. So here we are, in Portsmouth. <laughs> yeah. I can remember when Ben started Ben Ainsley Racing, there was much chat about how he wanted to sign Grant Simmer. 
It didn't work out, of course, you stayed with Oracle. But you're here now. How easy a decision was it to come to INEAS Team UK? Oh, good, because Ben, ben and I were mates and, uh, and we, because of San Francisco, we sort of got to know each other pretty well there. Um, both of us kind of newbies in that team. So we got to know each other pretty well. And then and, um, BAR, first time team, you know, struggled last cup really. Um, and Ben and I had sort of stayed in touch the whole way through it. Uh, and then we, t- we were talking about it quite, we were neighbours in Bermuda, strangely. So we'd often come in and discuss events of the day. And, uh, yeah, he was sort of saying, well, really keen to do it again and think that the team, you know, is up to do it again, BAR, got a lot of good people. And, um, so yeah, it wasn't a bit, I didn't find it a hard decision. I kind of wanted to do it. It's been a, a these boats are difficult, you know, it's been a hard campaign in a joining an existing team is often difficult. And um so there's been a lot of changes here. Not so much driven by me, but but I've had to manage a period of change with this team together with Ben, um, and it's been quite hard, but I think we're in quite a strong position now. You know, the COVID thing's been difficult. We'd, we'd set up a base in Cagliari because it was better to train there in winter, clearly. Um, but one of the reasons was to, to just take a smaller team away from the big base, be in a a small camp and try to build a build a sort of a, a different feel to the team. So we we did that in Cagliari and um, it was going really well for us, I thought. And we were getting a lot of sailing and the guys were upbeat because we were achieving quite a lot and then the COVID thing happened and um, we had to retreat really back here, which we had to in that environment. But we've actually had quite a good summer of sailing here. So we've, we sort of picked up where we left off in Cagliari. So the team at the moment has a good feeling and we've got this new boat, kind of a radical boat, going together well. So that's, everybody's excited with that. And we're about to go to New Zealand and got the quarantine thing happening in New Zealand. You know, that, we're just having to manage all those pieces. Um, but we've got the base ready. We've got people in New Zealand, got a hendo in New Zealand already. The base is kind of really nice and built and ready to go. So we'll roll down there over the next month. There's not long to go, is there? I mean, Graham, yeah. with this year 11th Cup campaign, you know, how nervous are you at this stage of the Cup? Four months out from a Challenger series. And presumably all the big design decisions now made and committed to. Uh, how nervous am I? I mean, I mean, I'm... We've... In any campaign, you feel like you've wasted time going down a few blind alleys. And we've had to recover. In this team, we've had to recover from a bit of that. Um, but on the other hand, I think um, we've made some good decisions in some key areas. So I'm I'm nervous to see us sail near another boat. It's so weird, you know. We've been sailing around. We sailed one day about half a mile away from Lunarossa. That was it. That was the only real feedback. Obviously, we watched them, but it's really hard to gauge your performance. So, um, yeah, I'm nervous, but the boat is a big step forward, this new boat, and uh, I think it was just exciting to get it commissioned and sailing. And I think you'll see lots of people introducing new falls and new sails, new controls, all the way through to the Challenger series. And if, and I think, 
if San Francisco has taught us anything, is you can never stop learning. You have to keep going. You have to keep learning and progressing. And and uh, and so the team that'll do that best, learn. You know, admit their weaknesses, address them, make changes, jump forward. The team that does that best will normally win. Hopefully, that'll be us. I came out to watch a couple of weeks ago, and I asked one of the sailors. I said, "You know, how different looking is is you know the next boat, boat number two? And they said, "Oh, it's a lot racier." <laughs> so I'm quite excited to see it. I thought that was a, a, a good word. It didn't really tell me anything, but uh, I said, "Oh, yeah, it's, it's racier than this one." Yeah, uh, it's, it's certainly different. Yeah. <laughs> We've looked into the real design elements of this cup a few months back on, on the podcast, but the AC75 class is a brand new concept, a, a foiling monohull. How hard is it to challenge for the cup where the class is so out there, so, so brand new? Difficult. I, the way that was managed this cycle, which I don't think's right, was that um, Team New Zealand and Luna Rossa were writing the rule in isolation, really. So we were speculating that it was, we'd heard that it was going to be a monohull, perhaps some sort of falling monohull. But they obviously had a head start on everyone. And I think you can see that uh, if you compare the Luna Rossa and Team New Zealand boats to the American Magic and the Ineos boat, there's a massive differences so they they obviously had a quite a head start on us and as time goes by the significance of that head start's been reduced but i i do think that if you are introducing a new class like this i don't know why you wouldn't share that with all the competitors and and as i say that advantage has diminished over time there's a lot of talent in this team, but thinking about all you've talked about again, the winged keel all the way through to San Francisco, as a man with unprecedented modern era experience of the cup, can you summarise at all what makes a successful cup campaign? I mean, is it true that the fastest boat will always win the cup or is it, is it more sophisticated than that? Whew, that's a big question. Um... You know, you've got to make the right decisions. These, this boat and the last couple of boats, the long lead times to build stuff. So you've got to make the right decision early in the campaign. Um, and the Kiwis did that really well in the last cup. And they appear to be doing quite well this time around. Um, but I'm confident that we are making some, we've made some good decisions over the last year, particularly. Um, so that's, um, so making good decisions at the right time in the campaign is important. Continuing to learn at all times is important and not be too proud of your decision, but, uh, understand why other people have made decisions, technically. Um, Using your time wisely, and that's particularly on the water time. Um, You know, testing priorities, not testing things with only small gains in them. Really testing things where you're going to make big gains. That's important. I always, I always say if you run out of time and money at the same time, then you've managed the program perfectly. <laughs> and then the sailors, obviously, the involvement of the sailors with the, the kind of really good Formula One driver works with his engineers really well, like to develop a car and set up, develop a car and tune the car. And the sailors play that role in this, in America's Cup campaign particularly with a new class of boat, because 
we're developing the boat constantly and the sailors are the, our test engineers, you know, our, our test pilots. So feeding back into the design process and understanding the design process is really critical. And then ultimately, hopefully, we'll have a full-on yacht race at the end where you've got to attack at the right time, got to win the start, got to position your boat correctly, and then all the time maintain at a near optimum performance, which is really these boats, you know, the 72, the 50, now this boat, bloody difficult boats to sail. And you, but you've got to be at optimum nearly all the time. You've got to be able to pull off all the manoeuvres properly, choreograph with all your crew. So you've got to get all that right. That's kind of a given. And then you've got to race the boat, you know. We can't wait to see that. Yeah. As I mentioned at the start of this chat, Grant, we do a degree of research on this podcast. And so I... I went to, to what I saw, two very different sources for a little inside knowledge. One of them is someone you're great mates with, Andrew Palfrey, dog. We mentioned him, of course, sailing super coach, your Etchell's teammate. And the other, a man you've managed through several cup campaigns, Oracle Team USA helm, Jimmy Spissel. Yeah. Jimmy emailed and we grabbed a beer with dog, but it amazed me that essentially, without any real prompting, what they said about you was virtually identical, that you look after the team, you want the team to be happy and for their families to be happy, that you're good at, at nurturing team spirit and, and a good culture. Why is that so important to you, do you think? I, well, I, it is important to me. It's an interesting comment because I, you know, I've sort of morphed into this manager's role you know, we've talked a lot about boat design. Well, the reality is that the tools that the engineers use these days, I understand what they're doing, but I don't understand remotely how they do it, you know. So the design phase of my career is a little bit passing me by, you know, reality what with these boats. But having a team that is comfortable, that is happy, that the families enjoy what their husbands are doing and are supportive. Things like always giving the kids the shirt with their father's name on the back and, you know, father, normally they're men on, you know, on board, father's name on back. Um, things like that, you know, I think bring a lot of value to the team. And, uh, and, yeah, I, I just think it's important if the team is together, uh, you can you can achieve a lot more. And and we ask people to work ridiculous hours that you wouldn't work in a normal job. You just wouldn't do it. Um, and yet, you know, for for year in year out, we ask people to really put in a lot of hours, so their their families are going to feel like they're part of the adventure as well. So that's why I do it, yeah. And uh, and I, yeah, I think it's really important. And you know, the next obstacle we've got is getting all these families down to Auckland, get them settled, kids in school. It's a really short cycle. Um, hopefully, it'll go well. Bermuda, we were there for longer, so we could people got really settled into the Bermudan lifestyle. Pretty hard. Pretty hard. Game. <laughs> it's pretty nice there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, looking back a little, in, in the Australia 2 campaigns, design was so much more, a, a, in a way, a mechanical process, wasn't it? Test tanks, the feel of the boat, I mean, translating that into to gains on the race course. And now we're into boats covered in sensors, huge amounts of data, performance analysis, simulation, a very different vocabulary, even. Looking at that 37-year time frame of cup campaigning, can you pinpoint where you think, for you, the greatest advances have been made? Where do you think are the greatest steps forward? Um, sorry, that's quite a difficult... It's difficult because every cup 
there's something like if you look at our budget now, we're holding money back because something's going to happen in New Zealand. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but we've all, you know, Ben and I and Nick and we know something will happen that we have to spend money, we have to commit resources to because somebody's done something better than us or somebody's come up with a better idea or we've come up with a new idea. So there's always something that will happen in the cup. Like uh, um, 07, it was the Genoas and being able to twist the Genoas. 03, it was a measurement process that we were going through, really optimising measurement. Um, um, 13 was falling upwind, you know, falling upwind, being able to do that, configuring your aerodynamics to do that and your wing. So we were scrambling, you know. And then um, Bermuda 17 was really probably about their control system and their board construction, as I said. So um, where's the biggest advancement and the biggest change? Well, the fact that we now have to have a really intricate control system to fly the boat, I think, is the level of systems on this boat is far exceeding what the AC-72 or the AC-50 had in it. Um, and that, that level of control, both to be able to fly the boat and control the aero forces, that's the biggest advancement. And it's a whole new group of engineers that we've got involved in the game who come out of aerospace, um, car racing, um, some of the um, Airbus engineers last time. Yeah, it's a whole new world control systems. So that's a, a really big change. Eh? I don't know if that answered the question, but there you go. As we've said, Grant, you've had a, a remarkable career. What's your relationship with that trophy? I mean, you've won it four times, very instrumental in, in uprooting it from its place in New York where it had been bolted down for over a century. You're in the America's Cup Hall of Fame, of course. But how do you feel about the America's Cup? Um, for me, it's not about holding the cup. Okay, it's not about even putting my hands on it. It's about feeling that I did a good job creating a team, um, you know, obviously in this, together with Ben or in this campaign or Jimmy last time, creating a team that actually could be better than everyone else. That's, that's what I really get a kick out of. And, the, and a team that's better than everyone else means, means a comfortable, you know, a happy team. Have to be happy. We've got to be proud, really proud of what they do absolutely committed and willing to do everything to the best of their ability and obviously having the right skills in the right locations. So for me, being proud of the team and what we've created is really what I'm, what I'm looking for, yeah. Over that career, Grant, obviously still very much involved at, at the cutting edge today, but chasing that elusive America's Cup. What would you say to the competitive, sail-hungry Grant Simmer of your youth? What advice would you give him with the hindsight of what you've achieved since those early days? Surely. That's, uh, I think the technology, I think you, the sport, I, I believe the America's Cup should be in the cutting edge of sailing technology. So therefore, you need to be a technical sailor. So therefore, being an engineer or having a technical training, I think, in this game, really important. Because we just talked about it earlier, being able to develop your boat um, like a test pilot or like a really good Formula One driver, um, they're, they're the skills that you need. So I would really push people to to do that. Um, and then just being a bloody good racer, you know, 
been keeping racing all the time. In the, you know, in the sport of sailing, if we don't race all the time, you don't, you're just not comfortable. When you've got to make fast decisions, you don't get comfortable with it. So I think you have to keep racing and you have to keep your technical skills up. And that, with those two things, if you do well with those two things, you'll be a strong America's Cup sailor. Grant Simmer, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed Grant's stories. He had a lot to tell. Literally a lifetime spent pursuing the ultimate prize in our sport. It's an astonishing career. But also told from a unique perspective by a man that's lived through an astonishing 11 Cup campaigns. To Grant, a massive thank you for his time and his honesty. It was wonderful to sit down and chat for so long at such a busy time. Do send us any feedback. We'd love to hear from you. It's all important in the podcast world. So please do let me know what you think. Leave us a review and do please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. As you all know, this podcast is lovingly produced by Tim at Vertigo Films. A big thank you to Tim for all his time and hard work editing the podcast. And thanks too to everyone at Ineos Team UK who looked after us so well, didn't grumble when we needed the aircon switched off and brought donuts when it was all over. Thanks to all of you. That's it from me until next time. Thank you so much for listening and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One standing by. Out. Oh.